Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With me today is Charles Duhigg. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter for the New York Times. He wrote The Power of Habit, a really excellent book. If you haven't read it, you should pick that up and read it. And he wrote most recently the book Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. He is a wonderful writer. He writes, you'll maybe hear me share this with him later, but uh, he wrote a one of his chapters, which involves a plane crash, is the most riveting. I mean, this is a nonfiction, you know, productivity book. It's the most riveting reading I have done in years. I was gripped by what was happening. I felt like I was on the plane myself. He's a really terrific writer. It's what happens when you get someone who's a great reporter, who's also a really great writer, who writes a book to help us get smarter, faster, and better. Charles, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, Charles, what led you? You know, you wrote, wrote The Power of Habit. It was a great book. It was super successful. This one is super successful as well. What led you to write this after The Power of Habit? Well, you know, I, right when The Power of Habit came out, I was uh, working at The Times. I'm a reporter at The New York Times. and I was working on a series about Apple and using Apple as a kind of a lens for looking at the global economy. Um, and that series ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. And so it was a great um, professional year for me. But I would get home every night and you know, have like a hundred emails to deal with. And I would turn to my wife and say like, gosh, if this is what success is like, like I kind of think I might prefer failure. This is just, (laughs) this is so punishing, which of course isn't true, right? I was very lucky to have the experiences I was having, but I did look around and I saw that there were people who, who just seemed to kind of have figured something out I hadn't. They, they seemed like they were getting all this important work done, but at the same time they had time to spend with their kids and with their family and they seemed like, uh, like they were less stressed out than I was. And I thought, I really want to figure out why. Like why are these people so productive without, without sacrificing as much as I feel like I'm even sacrificing. And, and I started talking to researchers. I found out I'm exactly right. There, there are these people who are like a standard deviation more productive than others. And we actually understand why. It's because they tend to think slightly differently. They tend to encourage themselves to think slightly differently, to think half an inch more about certain things. And so I, I thought that was important enough to share with others. And I, um, I read through, finally finished the book last night. You know, some books I could read very quickly. Yours I sort of wanted to read a little more slowly because I enjoyed the, the writing so much. At the very end, you talk about Malcolm McLean, right, who, uh, who was the sort of father of the container shipping industry. And, and you decided not to include him in the book or the research that you had done on him because it seemed like his you know, what led him to be productive was not as universal. And it brought up the question for me of the universality of all of this. You know, like we see different people and there's a, a temptation, uh, maybe correctly, maybe incorrectly, to look at them and go, you know, there are so many variables to what makes this particular person incredibly productive that to replicate it is a non-starter because, you know, we can't necessarily replicate all of those variables. And look, I, I write in these same areas and I wonder the same things myself, which is when we teach people, 
you know, to, to do something using models who do it really well. Um, are we, I'm curious about, and especially for you as an investigative reporter, I'm curious about how you came to the universality of it and how you made, you know, how you figured out what was universal and what was sort of particular to an individual. I think it's a really fair question. And and I talked about 450 people for this book, both both people who are sort of uniquely productive themselves, CEOs of companies that had sort of marked that, that, that firm as being uniquely productive, as well as researchers who had looked at these topics. And my first rule was I wanted to find things that kept on coming up again and again and again instead of things that just one group was saying. Because the truth of the matter is, if you talk to 450 people, you find 450 different ways of being productive. Right. But there are some commonalities. And in particular, and, and the book is built around that, right? There's eight chapters that look at these eight, these eight solutions that people kept on mentioning to me, or these eight things that they kept on thinking more about, about how they set goals, how they sharpen their focus, how they motivate themselves. But what underlies all of them, and I think this is the one universality, is these tend to be what are known in psychology as contemplative devices, right? The, the people who are most productive, they understand that they are busy. They understand that there is a lot to react to. So what they try and do is they try and build systems into their lives that force them to think half an inch more about certain choices, right? They, they force themselves to write to-do lists, for instance, in a certain way, to not only use a to-do list to remember what they want to get done, but to force them to think about their priorities. Am I focusing on the right goals as opposed to just writing down a list of goals? They tend to interact with their teams in specific ways because they know that teamwork is essential and that oftentimes the best team is not a collection of the best individuals. It's some type of group, a culture that comes together. And so they have sort of almost habits that they go back to about how they lead their teams that force them to think about, is this team coming together as opposed to being a group of, of individuals? And that's what they have in common, is they, they have systems that compel them to think a little bit more instead of simply allowing themselves to react. What are some of the systems that, that are highlighted for you? With each chapter, there's multiple systems in a sense inside there. I guess I'm asking, where, where's a good place to start? Well, one of my favorite chapters actually is about um, innovation and the, the making of Frozen. And the reason I like this is because most of us know Frozen as this huge blockbuster movie, right? But it was on the brink of catastrophe until just a couple of months before the movie was in the theaters. And, and this is where the Disney system kicked in so well. Because the Disney belief is there are not creative versus uncreative people. Basically, everyone on Earth is equally creative. The difference is that some people understand how to put themselves in a system that encourages that creativity. And that's what Disney does. Disney creates a process for innovation. And what's interesting about Frozen is that one of the big problems that they were having with the movie is they couldn't figure out how to make these kind of – all these different pieces fit together. Until they basically said, look, the, the root of our innovative process is to go back to what we know, to find stories that we think are true. And so what does Disney actually know? Disney knows princesses, right? Like they know princesses better than anyone else. But what else do we know? Because we've told the princess story a thousand times. Well, at that table making that movie, there was an unusually large number of women. On the, on the film writing team. In fact, the, the, the director of the movie was the first female director in Disney's history. And they said, look, the other thing that we know as a group is we know sisters, right? And we know that being a sister, it's actually kind of complicated. It's not that there's good sisters and, and evil sisters. It's that sisters get into fights and then they make up and they're sometimes messed up and they're sometimes great. And, 
So let's take these two ideas, princesses and sisters. Let's push those together in as true a way as we can. It's something that seems authentic to our own lives. And that's frozen, right? Once you do that, then you say, okay, so for the princess story, maybe maybe the prince doesn't save the princess. Maybe instead the princesses save each other because they're sisters. And then that way the prince can actually be the villain and we don't have to reveal that to the end. That's frozen. That's why the movie worked. But what's important about this is that Disney said, this isn't, everyone feels tense. Everyone feels like we're about to fail. That's okay. What we need to do is we need to go back to our process, our system, and that's how we'll be more creative than you could be otherwise. The point is so well taken because, you know, I've, I've sort of thought of this in terms of losing streaks. You know, when you look at hedge fund managers and losing streaks, how do you get out of a losing streak? And what I've seen, and I'm, I'm curious whether this sort of fits in, but it's the same idea, which is that ultimately if you're, if you've got a, you know, if you want to change things around, you have to go back to the discipline process that you know works 53% of the time. Right, that you know that this process is going to work on average a little more than not having that process or another process, and you just stick to the process, and on average, the process will produce. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think, I think in many ways, one way to think about this is how do you frame your experiences so that you can learn from them? What's the mental model that you're carrying around or the, the story you're telling yourself? And you mentioned that chapter about the airline flights and Air France Flight 447 that crashes into the sea versus Qantas Flight 32, which is this terrible mid-air mechanical emergency, and, the, and everyone survives. And in a lot of ways, the reason why those flights turned out so different is that in one case, in Qantas Flight 32, pilots were telling themselves a story about what was going on that helped them make sense of all the information around them. And this is true if you're a hedge fund manager, if you're just someone who works in an office. When you walk in, you are being inundated with information and requests and demands, right? You could spend your entire day replying to emails and feel like you're getting something done and not be productive at all. But, but the people who are most successful and the ones who are most productive, they're the ones who, who go in and they say, look, I'm telling myself a story in my head about what today is supposed to be like, right? I'm telling myself a story about what success actually looks like, what my goals actually are. I'm thinking about the choices I'm making. I'm making a habit of trying to build this mental model that explains to me why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's a, it's a technique for forcing us to, to just to reflect a little bit more so that when you are having a terrible streak as a hedge fund manager, you, you don't start saying, look, I'm all wrong. I'm doing everything all wrong. I'm, I, I don't trust my choices anymore. Instead, you have a device for sitting down and saying, look, is this just a blip? Like is the story I'm telling myself that I know my fundamentals, I know what's going to turn around, I know that I'm doing the right thing? Or is the story I'm telling myself is that I used to have some discipline and I've lost it. I'm making panicked decisions. Everything about learning from our experiences is about finding a frame in which to understand them. And that's really critical. And there's not a frame that you found that you could say, here is the frame you should use in order to be productive or in order to sort of achieve your objectives. Or is it more that you want to, like, that every situation has its frame and the important piece is to be thoughtful about the frame that you're using and that it ultimately connects with a process that works 53% of the time? That's exactly right. Because the truth of the matter is that productivity is different for every single person and it's different from, in, from setting to setting. A productive Wednesday morning might be one where you get your kids to school as fast as possible so you can, like, get to your desk. But a productive Friday morning might be one where you're so sort of carefree you can walk the kids to school and talk to them about their lives, right? There, there is no silver bullet. What there is, though, 
is our capacity for thought. Thinking is the killer app. It has been for like two million years. And the more that we can push ourselves, build systems into our lives, build habits that get us to actually think instead of just react, the more likely we're going to choose the right goals and we're going to actually achieve them. What's so interesting is that for people who feel overwhelmed and over busy, thinking is often the first thing that goes. You know, yeah. And I was struck by this when I was reading about the notes that you take before reading something you don't have time to read. So you don't have time to read, you know, a, a research document or, a, a, you know, a research paper. And what actually gives you time to read it, what gets you to do that, which is an incredibly productive thing when you're doing research for a book, is to spend time on top of the paper writing why it is that you want to read this. And intuitively, it's so counterintuitive because it's like, Look, if you've got time to spend writing why you need to read this, just frickin' read the thing. And right. yet, and yet, that makes the difference. Well, and I think this is the this is the distinction between being busy and being productive, right? For for most of the existence of humanity, those two things were exactly the same. For most of, of our species life, being able to multitask was a huge asset because if you could plant crops and look for predators at the same time, you are much better off than someone who could only plant crops or only look for predators. Being busy was great until about 150 years ago, particularly until about 20 years ago. Because what's happened in the modern economic age and the industrial or the economic revolution we're living through is that we now have many more ways to be busy. And, and there, is a, there is a tension between busyness and efficiency and productivity. I could read 10 papers, but if I don't remember any of those, anything I read, it's not productive, right? The, the most productive people are the ones who recognize the difference between busyness and productivity in today's age and try and offset, try and somehow accommodate that difference and push themselves to learn more from their experiences. And I found your definition of productivity so interesting because it's atypical. It's not, you weren't writing this book to say, here's how to get more done. Right. That's very, very clear. And I think that's the biggest myth of time management in general is that, you know, if you just follow someone's time management process, you'll get it all done. Like, I think that's the myth I tried to break with my book and that, you know, like ultimately we're never going to get it all done. So how are you defining? Because I thought you did it in a very broad and interesting way. How do you define productive? I, I think being productive is getting close to your goals with as, le as le little waste, stress, and strife as possible. And making sure that you're choosing goals that are actually your goals, right? There's nothing more wasteful than trying to optimize what never should have been done in the first place, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> we all know that feeling. We all know that feeling of like patting ourselves on the back because we got to inbox zero and then 20 minutes later thinking like, you know, I could have just deleted half those emails or the fact that I've responded to so many means that tomorrow I'm going to have twice as many to deal with, right? Being able to choose the right goals, the goals that actually mean something to you and then getting getting close to those goals without feeling stressed and like you have to make sacrifices and that you're you're making trade-offs that it's hard to tolerate, that is productivity. And that's what the eight ideas in this book really try and achieve is to give you the tools to say, what do I really want to do? How do I do it as best as possible without having to sacrifice everything else along the way? You know, it's interesting in the coaching work that we do in organizations, I think of it in terms of our job is to help people get massive traction on wildly important things. And you know, you can miss on either side. You can get no traction, but know what your wildly important things are, 
or you can get massive traction on your email inbox. <laughs> That's like exactly completely, right. And so it, you're talking about both sides of the equations. And, and I guess the first piece is you better know what your wildly important things are. The main thing is keeping the main thing the main, the main thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's amazing how infrequently we stop and pause and do the thinking to figure that out. And it's because we feel busy, right? Because we don't have time to do that. Um, and, and I understand, right? The more successful you are, the more that you are busy, the more you feel like you want to seize all these opportunities around you, the more distracted you can become. But if we can force a habit into our lives that forces us to reflect, that's when you can actually make sure you're keeping the main thing the main thing. And one of the hard things, I guess, at times is to say, you know, I'm not going to answer all of those emails because they're not the main thing. And then I may have to feel like I'm not being nice or I'm not being generous or I'm not responding to everyone's needs. And you have to deal with that emotionally in order to stay focused on that main thing. That's exactly right. But what's interesting is there was actually a study where um, a couple of science, uh, researchers were allowed it to look at um, all the emails that had been sent at one company over a nine-month period. And they found that the most productive the people who brought in the highest profits and were sort of seen as their peers as being most productive, they tended to delete emails after two seconds of looking at them at a rate that's 11 times higher than everyone else. Basically, like they wouldn't even read the entire email. They were in control of what, how they were spending their time. And as a result, they actually got much more done. That's amazing. Charles Duhigg, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. The book is Smarter, Faster, Better. The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. Charles Duhigg is the author who is with us today. And I loved having the conversation with you as much as I did reading the book. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.